sins, he used the symbol of fire. Fire is one of the most extreme and painful natural elements, and the Lord used it to communicate about the terrors of hell. Now, because of that, some people, I think wrongly, have assumed that hell will be a place of literal fire. I don't think that that's true. I think hell will probably be a place much worse than that. Because a symbol never fully captures the reality that it's pointing to. Think about the American flag. When you look at it and you see that symbol, does it fully capture everything that it stands for? Democracy, freedom, etc.? No, it does not. It's almost like a shadow. If I'm out in the sun at the right time of day, I will cast a shadow. And if you look at that shadow from the right angle, you'll see me. But what that shadow looks like is me, but it's not really me. The actual Sean, if you've known me in real life for even like five minutes, you know is much greater than the reality of that shadow. We're going to be talking about shadows and symbolism today because I think that that's the way we can understand this text. Now, theologians use a term called typology. You don't have to remember that, but if you're a theology nerd, here's your chance. All that means is that there are shadows and then there are fulfillments. There's the shadowy form of something and then that which it points to. The author of Hebrews uses that exact terminology of shadows when he writes, For since the law was but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities. And your Bible is full of shadows. Okay, here's an example. Here's a concrete example to help you understand what I'm talking about. In the Old Testament, God's people celebrated Passover. Passover was a celebration instituted by God to commemorate his rescuing people from slavery in Egypt and the wrath of God passing over the house of the families whose doorframe was covered in the blood of the spotless lamb. Well, that's the shadow. The fulfillment of that is when Jesus Christ, the spotless lamb, came and rescued his people from slavery and his blood covers the doorframe of all those who have trusted in him, and the wrath of God passes over. Moses was a shadow of Christ. God's people were trapped in sin. God sent a redeemer, a man, to come and rescue God's people from their slavery. Christ came to rescue us from our spiritual slavery. The sacrificial system was a shadow that pointed to Christ. The temple was a type, a shadow that pointed to Christ. Christ came as the true temple. The entire Exodus event, God rescuing his people from slavery, passing them through the waters of judgment, on into the, into the uh, desert and then into the promised land, that's the story of your life. You were trapped in sinful slavery. God rescues you and then you are baptized, you pass through the waters of tribulation and then you come out and now you live your life in the desert while you wait to enter into the promised land. Symbols and symbolism. But what does that have to do with what we're reading this morning? Well, let's read the text together in Mark chapter 1, starting in verse 9, and we'll study it together. Mark chapter 1, verse 9. If you're not familiar with your Bibles, in the New Testament it goes Matthew, Mark. If you're not familiar with your Bibles, the big numbers are the chapter, little numbers are the verse. Mark chapter 1, verse 9 reads, In those days... Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, 
Immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven saying, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness for forty days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. This is God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May you bless it. Amen. Our text this morning is one that gives many Christians heartburn. Here's the issue. John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. Repentance means turning away from sin. And yet, we know that Jesus Christ was without sin. So why would God in the flesh, a person without sin, need to go receive John's baptism of repentance, which means turning away from sin? Well, here in, the Mark, here in the book of Mark, we aren't really given an explanation. Mark isn't overly concerned with explaining the details of the drama. As you read his whole gospel, if you get a chance, maybe even this afternoon, sit down and read the whole book of Mark. You'll see he just kind of throws it out there and doesn't ever really try to explain it. It's very fast-paced. Reading the book of Mark is kind of like uh, listening to a friend who talks really fast. It's like, okay, slow down, take a breath, you know what I'm saying? Let me catch up with you. That's what it's like to read Mark. Matthew, in his version of the gospel, when he explains Jesus' baptism, he kind of gives us an explanation. He says that Christ was baptized in order to fulfill all righteousness. When Matthew gives me that explanation, I kind of feel like I'm cheated. You know, it's like, well, thanks, Matt. You know what I'm saying? But what does it mean to fulfill all righteousness? You kind of gave me an answer without really giving me an answer. Help me out here, buddy. Well, I think I know what it means to fulfill all righteousness. I think there are two ways that Christ fulfills all righteousness when he goes to get baptized. The first is this. In in baptism, Jesus fulfills all righteousness by identifying with sinful humans and their need to be saved. In baptism, Jesus identifies with sinful humans and their need to be baptized and their need to be saved. And listen, the idea of Jesus identifying with sinful humans, it shouldn't be strange to us. It lies at the very heart of the gospel. Later, as Paul is teaching on the gospel, he says that Christ, who knew no sin, became sin on our behalf. The gospel of John tells us that the word became flesh. And what that means there is like he came down and like tabernacled. He lived. He made a tent in the flesh. He identified with us in our fleshiness. The book of Hebrews tells us that we have a high priest who can identify with us in our weaknesses and our temptations. It's not like he's unsympathetic to us. Identifying with humans is what Christ does. So the question is, did Christ need to be baptized? The answer is, of course not. But Christ did need to identify with those who needed to be baptized. Namely you and me. Here's an illustration that might help you understand this. It's not a perfect illustration, as all illustrations fall apart at some point. There's a young man, 18, he gets into some trouble. Comes from a good family, good home, never been in trouble. But at 18, he starts running around with the wrong guys, wrong crowd, wrong place, wrong time. And he commits a serious crime. And now he is in jail, and uh, it's getting worked out with the judge and with the DA, a plea bargain for him. And he and his father are sitting with their lawyer and the DA in the back room of the courthouse. 
discussing the terms. And the DA says, you deserve 50 years in prison, we'll give you 20. Do you accept the terms of this plea? The son accepts it. The father sitting there consoles him. When it's their time in court, they go, and as they're moving towards the door of the courtroom, the son begins to hyperventilate. The reality of the fact that he's about to lose 10 years of his life in prison is overwhelming him. He starts to cry. They go into the courtroom and he sits down. His father sits next to him and his lawyer sits next to him. The judge stands up and addresses the courtroom, states the crimes, states the plea bargain, and asks the young man, Sir, do you accept the plea sentence, the plea deal, the sentence of 10 years? And the young man begins to sob uncontrollably. He can't talk, he can't communicate, he can't respond to the judge. He is just coming apart at the seams. And so the father stands up and he walks over to him and he puts his hands on his son's shoulders and he tells the judge, Your Honor, we accept the plea. We accept the sentence. That is the way that the father identifies with the son. That's the way the son identifies with us in our sins. As I was thinking through this illustration, I very intentionally wanted it to be father and son because that's exactly what's happening here in the book of Mark, in Jesus' baptism. If you remember the first verse of Mark's gospel, it reads like this. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Jesus is, in, very, in a very real sense, God's Son, while still being fully God Himself. Jesus, God the Son, has eternally coexisted with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. Now, if you want me to explain to you fully and finally how all that works out, I am sorry to disappoint you. I cannot do it. Nobody can do it. A God that we fully understand, a God that we can fully explain, is less than us. He's not God. If we can fully understand and explain Him, He's not God, we are. But, you know, God doesn't demand that we fully explain Him or that we fully understand Him. God demands that we trust Him and obey Him as He has revealed Himself to us in His Word. I don't have any ignorant imagination that I, as a creature, will ever be able to fully understand or explain my Creator. But Jesus is not God's only Son in the Bible. In the Word... God describes His chosen people, Israel, as God's Son. Hosea 11.1 1 reads like this, When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Last week, I spent about ten minutes of my sermon sharing with you guys the entire story of redemption. That probably felt like a long time for some of you guys. Maybe some of you were like, come on, man, wrap it up. Others of you perhaps have never heard the story of the Bible explained that way. But if you want to understand the part, you have to understand the whole. And if you want to understand Jesus' baptism, you have to understand the story of God's son Israel. To recap, beginning in Genesis 12, God calls Abram, soon to be called Abraham, and he makes a covenant with him. He enters into a relationship of love with him. And in that covenant, God forms a people for himself like the people who are gathered here today. And after some time, God's people become enslaved. God's son is a slave. 
And so God's son cries out to God, Have you forgotten us? Where are you? Are you going to keep your promise? And God responds by sending a redeemer, Moses. And God's son is rescued from slavery. And then God's son is led through the turbulent waters of the Red Sea and out the other side to the wilderness. But everything wasn't all good for God's son after he was rescued. You would think that God rescuing his son by the might and the power of his hand with miraculous deeds, the plagues, etc., would be enough to convince anyone to just trust and obey God. But that is the exact opposite of what we see happening in the story. God's son continues to sin. If you keep reading from the verses that I read earlier, verses 2 and 3 say, the more they, that's Israel, God's son, were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up in my arms, but they did not know that I healed them. So in the story, after God rescues his son, it seems like God's son seems to be doubling down on his sin. It's almost like a 16-year-old comes home one day and dad has bought him a brand new car. And rather than thanking dad and acting in a way that would show his understanding of the grace that he's received, he goes out and breaks the law, you know, breaks the speed limit, wrecks the car, and comes down and burns the house up. You know, I don't know, just something terrible. That's what you see happening here. From grumbling and complaining to building golden calves, the sin of God's son seems to be compounding. And then... So many years later, after reading so much about God's disobedient son, reading about God's wayward son, God's true son, Jesus Christ, arrives on the scene. And in verse 11, we read the father talking to the son saying, You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. With you, I am well pleased. I didn't grow up with a father, but I still understand what it means to have your good and righteous father look at you and say, Son, I'm pleased with you. And that is what the father says to the son here. I mean, think about all the ways that God's people, God's son, failed him throughout the story of the Bible. Grumbling, complaining, idolatry of every kind. The list could just go on forever. Now think about Jesus, who came and perfectly walked in the will of the Father, even under the point of death. Jesus, just prior to his crucifixion, knowing exactly what was coming his way, knelt down and prayed these words, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. In his baptism, We see Jesus fulfill all righteousness, the righteousness of Israel by passing through the waters of judgment just as they did, identifying with sinful men, which they were, and then being led out into the wilderness as they did. In his baptism and temptation, we come to see that Jesus is the true Israel, passing through his own exodus, fulfilling all righteousness as God's faithful son. God's righteous son, the shadow of God's son, Israel, 
becomes the reality of God's righteous son, Jesus. The shadow of God's sinful son, Israel, becomes the reality of God's righteous son, Jesus Christ. It's also during Jesus' baptism that we begin to see God peeling back the layers of revelation about himself, giving us greater insight into the nature of his person and being. In his baptism, we have God the Father. In the baptism, we have God the Father audibly communicating with God the Son and God the Holy Spirit descending upon the Son as he comes out of the waters. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all present in the same place at the same time. Let's read verses 9 through 11 to see that. Verse 9 begins, In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice from heaven, a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. Now, Perhaps you might think, like other commentators who should know better, better, that this was the first time that the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit were all present in the same place at the same time in the Bible. But that is not true. As a matter of fact, if you were to just go and open your Bible and start reading from the first, for the first time on page one, you would see the members of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all present and all active at the same time. Genesis 1, verses 2 through 3, reads like this. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. Here we have God the Father creating by the power of His Word, which John 1 tells us is the Son, John says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Here you also see the Holy Spirit. It says that the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. All three persons of the Trinity are active and present as God is creating the world, and that is on the absolute very first page of your Bible. As a matter of fact, any time that God is creating, He's doing it with all the persons of the Trinity present. Another example, brothers and sisters, even now, if you are a Christian, you are here because God has remade you in His image. He has recreated you, and all the members of the Trinity were active in that. In the book of Ephesians, chapter 1, we see that God the Father, quote, this is from Paul, chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. <clears throat> the text continues, in love He predestined us for adoption as sons. Later, Paul says that the Son, Jesus Christ, redeems us and He forgives us and He lavishes His grace on us. Finally, as Paul closes out the chapter, teaching on salvation, he says that the Holy Spirit seals us for the day of redemption. He puts His stamp on us and it cannot be broken. Father, electing, predestining, adopting, Son, redeeming, forgiving, lavishing grace. Spirit, regenerating, sealing, and sanctifying. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all working together in tandem, in perfect and beautiful unity to recreate you in the image of His Son, Jesus Christ. Doesn't that make you want to cry out 
with Paul when he says, oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. It's at this point that we would do well to meditate on what this means for our lives. Have you meditated lately on your union with Christ? When we repent of our sins and we trust in Christ for salvation, we become one with Christ. Literally. Apart from him, God looks at us and he sees a stiff-necked, disobedient son. But in Christ, the Father looks at us and he sees the image of his perfectly righteous son, Jesus Christ. We will never reach perfection, brothers and sisters. But perfection is nevertheless the standard of a holy and righteous God. So what hope do we have for a God who demands perfection for us as a people who will never be perfect? It's the hope of Jesus Christ, who lived a perfect life, the life that we can never live. He perfectly obeyed God's laws, never disobeyed His Father, was perfectly walking in the will of God. And when we are saved by Him and we are united with Him, His perfection becomes our perfection. My father, my literal father, may end up visiting us uh, at some time in July. He's not a Christian, and I never knew him until about a year and a half ago. He abandoned me before I was born, and so I grew up without a father. And one of the most amazing things to me as a Christian is that I, Sean, the fatherless child of, C- uh, the fatherless child of Caesar, and now counted as a son of the living God. The same is true of everyone here. If you do not have a father, but you are in Christ, you are a son of the living God of the universe. Even if you grew up in a home with both parents who were happily married, you, if you belong to Christ, are a true son, a true daughter of the living God. But the thing is, The same is not true for those who are outside of Christ. Every person here prior to being in Christ was alienated from God. Going back to Ephesians, Paul says that we were alienated from Him because of our very nature. We were messed up at the core and that alienated us. It separated us from our Father. That's why Paul tells us in Ephesians that we've been adopted as Christians. You know who needs to be adopted? Someone who doesn't have a family. It is anathema to say to people in the world today that if they are not in Christ, they do not belong to God's family. But it is absolutely the truth of the Bible. It is absolutely the truth of the gospel. It took God's Son saving us to bring us into God's family. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, I know that this might seem mean and unkind, but I need you to know that you are not a child of God. It's it's the most loving thing I can do. I have to tell you, you don't belong to God if you don't know God's Son, Jesus Christ. It's a scary thing to think that we don't belong to the family of God. But I want you to know that the doors of God's house have been flung wide open in Jesus Christ. God's house is not a house with bars. He doesn't have guard dogs out in front of his home. There's not a wall that you have to scale or a secret password that you have to know or a code that you have to crack. To get into God's house, 
You simply have to turn from your sins and trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior. The doors are wide open, and your own sin is the only thing that's keeping you from walking through those doors. Nobody's trying to keep you back. If you don't know Christ, you're keeping yourself back. But that can change even today. If you don't know Christ, I'd encourage you to come and talk to me or one of the elders after the service or any one of the pews next to you who you think is a Christian. We would love to talk to you about the hope that's in Jesus Christ to come into the family of God. Returning to Jesus again, the final act of his exodus fulfillment takes place in the wilderness where he's tempted by Satan. Verses 12 and 13 read, The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. If I were going to try and give this scene a dramatic title, like a Hollywood you know, movie, like this is what's going to be on the trailer, I would say it like this. The Exodus event. Scene two. God's son meets God's enemy. Because that is what, ha what happens in the wilderness. God's son meets God's adversary. I mean, this is the stuff that sells pay-per-view tickets. Mayweather versus McGregor, nothing on this. Okay, God's son and God's enemy are in the wilderness. It's like a cosmic cage match of sorts. Now, the setting of this event is crucial, guys. The Spirit doesn't lead Jesus into the wilderness by accident. Jesus could have very well been tempted in the city. If you live in a city, you know there's no shortages of temptation walking around here in the summer in short shorts all day, every day. The billboards, everything, it's here. It's right in the, so why does God lead Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted? Well, the wilderness seems to be a recurring theme for Israel. Most notably, the 40 years that they spent there in the desert after they passed through the Red Sea before promising entering into the Promised Land. Also, you do well to note how many days Jesus spent in the wilderness. Forty. How many years did Israel spend in the wilderness? Forty. The shadow and the fulfillment. The wilderness is a dark and dangerous place. Now, you may not understand what I mean when I say that if you, like, go camping in the woods of North Alabama. You know, you're out there, you got your four-person tent, you got your Coleman electric lantern, you got your 17,000 shotguns with you, uh, you're in Wheeler Wildlife Refuge where we basically know, like, the most dangerous thing you'll come upon is, like, a scared deer or maybe a water moccasin. When I say that the wilderness is a terrifying place, that may not resonate with you. Maybe you're like Tom Haverford who takes a fully functioning generator and entertainment system into the wilderness with you, and that's what you call camping. <clears throat> that is not the wilderness. That is not the wilderness experience. My family and I lived in the jungle, in the heart of the jungle, the Amazon jungle. And I'm telling you, the wilderness is a scary place. From massive snakes to spiders the size of your hand, from mosquitoes who will kill you by giving you diseases, 17 million different kinds of diseases that you can't do anything about because if they got it and they bite you, now you're sick. To jaguars, who I was sure were going to eat me when I was going to the bathroom in the middle of the night. The wilderness is the place where the beasts are. Mark literally says that in verse 13. He says, Jesus was in the wilderness with the wild animals. You know, in cities and towns, we are not surrounded by wild animals. 
in a city, you're surrounded by the image of God, by other people. In cities and towns, we see the clearest example of humans doing what God has commanded them to do in Genesis 1 and 2, which is to subdue the earth, build civilization, tame the beasts. All that takes place in cities. There's safety in the city. Not ultimately so, but sufficiently so. And if you've ever lived in the wilderness and then moved to the city, you'd probably better understand that. The same cannot be said of the wilderness, where we encounter the fallen creation with no provision for protection. And that's where Jesus is, being tempted. And like the baptism scene, Mark doesn't tell us very much about what takes place here in the wilderness. Matthew tells us a lot, but Mark doesn't tell us very much at all. And I think that that's because, for Mark, all that really matters is that Christ made it out. Christ won. In the cosmic cage match of Satan and Jesus in the desert, Christ was victorious. I don't need to know the details. All I need to do is know who won. I don't watch basketball very much. I'm the kind of guy who can sit down and watch a game and enjoy it. <clears throat> but like, if I get up, I'm just never going to think about basketball ever again. But I knew that there was a big deal going on with like the Warriors and the Cavs this last year. <clears throat> Apparently the year before that, you know, it was like this big upset. And like all my friends who care about basketball were talking about it. So, yeah, I would just kind of Google Warriors, Cavs, you know, who won tonight? And I would get the answer. And then finally I found out that they swept them when I Googled who won. And you know what? I didn't need to know the details. I didn't sit and watch the game. I didn't watch the highlights. I just wanted to know who won. I think that's what's going on here with Mark. One commentator summarizes the wilderness experience like this. He was tempted but not, did not give in. Jesus, the true light, triumphed over the darkness of the wilderness and carried on in his Father's will. And this is my favorite part. He says, While Israel, God's son, failed in the desert, Jesus, God's son, triumphed there. Are you beginning to see how this whole shadow fulfillment thing works as you read your Bibles? I really, I really hope so, because understanding this will help you be a better student of God's Word. And as a better student of God's Word, you will have an easier time following Christ in this world. If you think you can follow Christ without reading and understanding your Bible, you, you will have a very hard time. One of the reasons why sometimes I kind of knock devotionals is because sitting down, reading a paragraph from Scripture, and then getting some light, pithy statement about it doesn't do much to help you understand the story that you are a part of. So I'd encourage you to study this sort of thing and to understand how it will help you live a more faithful life as a Christian. But guys, the story isn't over yet. My sermon almost is. Amen? But the story isn't over yet. Even now, there are still many shadows that need to be fulfilled. In Isaiah 35... The prophet describes a reality yet to come. And that reality is a world without wilderness. This is what he says. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come upon it. They shall not be found there, but the Redeemer shall walk there. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be on their heads. And they shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. 
Later, the prophet Ezekiel says much the same thing. I will make them a covenant of peace, and I will banish wild beasts from the land. Do you see? Christ faced the beasts so we would not have to, so that they may dwell securely in the wilderness <coughs> and sleep in the woods. And I will make them in the places all around my hill of blessing, and I will send down the showers in their season. They shall be showers of blessing. And the trees of the field shall yield their fruit, and the earth shall yield its increase, and they shall be secure in the land. And they shall know that I am the Lord when I break the bars of their yoke and deliver them from the hand of those who have enslaved them. They shall no more be a prey to the nations, nor shall the beasts of the land devour them. They shall dwell securely and none shall make them afraid. One day, brothers and sisters, there will be no wilderness. God will bring heaven to earth. And the new heavens and the new earth will come and there will be only light and no darkness for the beast to hide in. There will be no need for baptism because the earth will be flooded with the waters of the glory of God. We don't have to enter into the wilderness again because Christ entered into the wilderness for us. Jesus, the perfect Son, the true Israel, has given us peace with our Father. It may not seem like it. It may not feel like it because we still live in the age of shadows. But if you've learned anything from the sermon this morning you should know that God will not leave us in the shadows forever. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for the good news.